Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Poem Crit 101. I'm Dr. J, your friendly neighborhood intensivist, and I've got Dr. Carroll again with me today. Hello, everybody. And before we started recording, Dr. J was telling me or giving me a teaser about this case. And the two words, the two things she told me was a pimp and a gun. Yes, I may have mentioned both those things. So now it's time to explain. So let's hear it. So where I did my residency training was actually downtown. We were a level one trauma center in a pretty bad area. And I was on night float. And I remember vaguely hearing, you know, a trauma case had come into the unit, something about a young girl, she had needed cardiac massage in the OR. And on top of that, she had gotten over 40 units of packed red cells, platelets, FFP. Now remember, this happened when I was an intern. And I had honestly, at that point, never heard of anyone needing that much resuscitation. Over 40 units of product is probably the highest number of blood products I've heard that had to be transfused to a patient. Exactly. I, it was something uh, pretty crazy to me as well. Um, I got to tell you the backstory though. So this young girl was actually a prostitute. Uh, she had gone to see her pimp and she was standing in the door arguing with him for whatever reason. He decided he wasn't happy and he pulled out a gun and shot her in the chest from less than a foot away. I, I literally don't even know what to say. Well, it gets better. So he goes back inside. Someone outside, you know, had to have heard the gunshot and, and saw what happened to the girl. So they call 911. But he's back inside and no one knows that he did it. In the meantime, she gets brought to our ER, you know, immediately starts getting resuscitated in trauma bay. And then someone gets brought into the room next to hers with a complaint of chest pain. Oh, my God. You've got to be kidding me. Did he come to finish off the job? Well, it, it was the pimp. He brought the gun with him and, you know, one of the nurses noticed and called the police right away. Whether or not he came to finish off the job, I don't know. But I'll tell you this. The girl went to the OR and actually ended up walking out of the unit about three weeks later. That I can't wait to hear about. But do we know what ended up happening to the pimp? I'm pretty sure he got charged with murder. I would have been interested to know whether or not he did try to um, go after her again while he was there with quote unquote, chest pain. Right. <laughs> so the reason why I think this case is actually interesting, other than the backstory, is this is a really great example of utilizing something called massive transfusion protocol. Yeah, MTP or massive transfusion protocol is literally a lifesaver. And we've used it a few times on our, our bad GI bleeds. Right. It actually was developed to be used for traumatic hemorrhage, but um, we often use it in non-traumatic situations, like you mentioned, GI bleeds, even obstetric hemorrhages, or just even in the OR if someone's just bleeding and it's not stopping. And I remember intern year, like having to make the call of saying, let's start MTP was always very nerve wracking. And I think that's one of the difficulties for people is deciding when to start initiating massive transfusion protocol. So the way I see it, I feel it's never really too early to start MTP. There's no, you know, defined criteria in the literature of when exactly to start it. Really, you have to use your clinical judgment. One thing I'll say, though, is that you can't just rely on your hemoglobin and seeing if your patient's in shock, like if they have low pressures, because if you're waiting that long for those changes to occur, then usually it's too late. Sure, that makes sense. And just so we're clear, when we're talking about MTP, what actually constitutes MTP, we're talking about packed red blood cells, platelets, and FFP. Exactly. So remember, when we give these three products, when we're doing MTP, we give it in a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one ratio. And also, cryo is not part of MTP. Um, there may be a role to give cryo as well, which we'll talk about in a minute. But when someone says, hey, let's start MTP, we're talking about PRBCs, platelets, and FFP. 
And in your opinion or your experience, what's the best and quickest way to get all of that product into your crashing patient? So a lot of people have this misconception that, you know, central access is the best. It's always superior in an ICU patient. It's not always true. Like you hear about in GI bleeds, if you've got a good peripheral IV, you know, two good peripheral IVs, that's enough. Well, in this case, if you've got good peripheral IVs and something called a rapid infuser, then you're usually good. If you do need to put central access, actually having a dialysis line or a MAC catheter is probably better. Really, a regular central line is not that helpful because when you think about physiology, the longer the catheter is, the slower the flow rate would be. If you're stuck with a regular central line and you don't have anything else, then again, add that rapid infuser to help augment the flow. Okay, that makes sense. And you mentioned cryo earlier. So when do we give that? So remember, when you have massive transfusion, your fibrinogen level may actually drop because of dilution. And you do get some fibrinogen and FFP, but it's, it's really not enough. Every hospital has like, you know, a different protocol when you should start giving cryo. But the bottom line is your goal fibrinogen target should be about 150 to 200. So what I usually do is I'll check a fibrinogen on my initial labs. And then either after we've gone through a couple rounds of MTP or if the labs come back in time, I'll start giving cryo. 10 units of cryo should increase your fibrinogen by about 75 points. Okay. And I remember, and we've had a couple of cases where we've used TXA in these situations where there's massive bleeding going on. Is there a specific protocol that we have for that? So TXA, or for those of you who don't know, tranexamic acid, um, when it was studied, it was actually found to have a benefit in obstetric and early traumatic hemorrhage. But they were able to extrapolate its use to other hemorrhagic situations. Um, the studies that have been done show that it's safe to use in other uh, non-traumatic hemorrhagic situations. But one trial did show, you know, there was a slight increase in thromboembolic events if they did it in specifically outside of non-GI bleed situations. Okay. So really all in all, if they're in hemorrhagic shock, it's generally safe to use. And I know we've actually used it a couple times in bronchoscopies. Uh, or someone's presenting with hemoptysis. Absolutely. And for IV uh, TXA, how we dose it, we use data from the CRASH trial. So you give one gram IV right away, and then you can follow that up by another gram over eight hours as often as you need to for the next 24 hours. And TXA also has its, uh, its own problems, its own side effects. It can lower the seizure threshold if I remember correctly. Correct. Obviously, if you're in a situation when someone's bleeding out, you know, I'd take the risk, but definitely something to keep in mind. Right. And of course, something you always need to have in the back of your mind, if the patients are on some sort of anticoagulation at home, we want to go ahead and reverse that by giving case centra. Exactly. And the other thing to remember is if they're on an antiplatelet, you also have the option of giving uh, desmopressin or DDAVP um, to help reverse that as well. Okay. I have to ask you, Dr. Carroll, it's one of my favorite questions on rounds. What electrolyte abnormality are you going to expect? expect in someone who's been getting MTP. I knew this one was coming. Yeah, I, I knew it. Uh, hypocalcemia. And the reason it happens is because the citrate and the blood products actually chelates the calcium. And then you have, you know, a resulting low calcium when you check your labs. Excellent. Obviously you've been paying attention. Um, so usually I'll give one gram of IV calcium chloride or three of uh, calcium gluconate for every round of MTP. And then we usually find that these patients are also acidotic as well, right? Yes, they'll have a metabolic acidosis, and as they get resuscitated, that should improve. But if you see that your pH is lagging behind, you know, you can give some sodium bicarb. It's not going to hurt anything. And now in the few times we've given it uh, in the unit, we usually have the patients placed, uh, you know, we put a warming blanket on top of them. Why do we do that? 
So remember, whenever you're rapidly infusing product that's either cooled or room temp, it's really easy for these patients to develop hypothermia. And remember, with hypothermia, that makes clotting much more difficult, which then makes resuscitation more problematic. So how do we preempt this? We can warm the product we give via the infuser or use the warming blankets like you mentioned. Um, you can actually even warm the inhaled gas that's given through the vent if your patient is tubed. Okay, that makes sense. And, you know, what, what's the endpoint? How do we know when we can stop MTP? So this is a really uh, great question because you also don't want to over-resuscitate. This can actually promote bleeding. Like, for example, if there's a variceal bleed, if you over-transfuse, you can increase the pressure behind the bleed and you can even dislodge clots. I think I'd probably aim for a map around 60 um, unless you know or have an idea that your patient might have a traumatic brain injury. Then I would go a little higher so you can maintain that cerebral perfusion pressure. The other thing you can follow along are labs. You know, you want your platelet count above 50, your fibrinogen more than 150, your INR less than two. And obviously, you know, you want to make sure you have source control. Wow. So this poor woman got over 40 units of product and massive transfusive transfusion protocol saved the day. Uh, but this was a good case. This is an important, important topic for anyone working in the ICU or critical care to know because we see it quite often. In our institution, we see it more often with GI bleeds, but if you're at a trauma center, you're going to be very, very friendly with MTP. I completely agree. It's definitely something that everyone needs to have in their toolbox. Well, as always, I'm Dr. J. I want to thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of Plum Crit 101. Make sure to tune in next week when we talk about some more crazy and wild cases in the ICU. So I think it's really important that we go over it. I was reviewing the topic myself, and I was trying to come up with a good way to make it easy to remember, and I think I might have stumbled upon one. So let's think about an example patient, uh, Mr. Smith, and you know, you, he's your new patient, and you see he's got hyponatremia, we'll say sodium of 120. So the first thing you need to do is figure out the underlying cause before you even start treatment, right? So the first step in figuring out the underlying cause is to look at what is the tonicity, not volume status. Oftentimes people think about volume status as the very first step, but in fact, you want to know the tonicity. And how you actually calculate this is you take the BUN, multiply that by two, and subtract that from the measured osmolality. And remember, the formula for the measured osmolality, that's the same one we use when we're calculating the osmolar gap. So once you calculate that tonicity, then you can kind of subcategorize your hyponatremia into hypertonic hyponatremia, isotonic hyponatremia, and hypotonic hyponatremia. So when we think about hypertonic hyponatremia, these are usually the patients that will have a tonicity greater than 295. And usually this is due to hyperglycemia or if they've gotten mannitol or glycerol for some reason. Isotonic hyponatremia is going to have a tonicity of 280 to 295. And we actually also call this pseudohyponatremia. And usually what happens here is you have extra solutes like, in, like in hyperlipidemia or even hyperproteinemia, like what you would see in someone with multiple myeloma. Now, if you have a tonicity less than 280, that's what we call hypotonic hyponatremia. And this is really the majority of the cases that you're going to see in patients in the ICU. So once you determine the tonicity, that's when the next step is to look at the volume status. And so how we split people up is based on hypervolemia, euvolemia, and hypovolemia. And remember, these are all patients that are 
hypotonic. Okay, so let's start with hypotonic, hypovolemic, hyponatremia. When we think about causes of this category of hyponatremia, we want to split the causes into renal losses and extra renal losses. So when we think about extra renal losses, we're going to think about things like, you know, patients who are vomiting, have diarrhea, maybe their third spacing due to burns, pancreatitis, or even traumatized muscle, like a rhabdo sort of a picture. And when we think about renal losses, we're going to think about those patients who are maybe abusing diuretics. They have a mineral, mineral corticoid deficiency. They have an RTA, or they have an osmotic diuresis with glucose, urea, or mannitol. And along with thinking about those causes, we can actually look at some lab values that will help kind of confirm what that etiology is. So remember, anyone who's got hypovolemic hyponatremia, they're going to have a urine osmolarity greater than 200. Now, to delineate things even further, if the cause is from an extra renal loss, they'll have that urine osmolar osmolarity greater than 200, but they're going to have a urine sodium less than 10, while those who have renal losses will have a urine sodium greater than 10. So to reiterate, if it's an extra renal loss and you're a hypovolemic hyponatremic patient, your urine sodium will be less than 10. But if it's a renal loss, your urine sodium is going to be greater than 10. And when you think about hypovolemic hyponatremia in general, think about it this way. You're going to have a decrease in both total body water and total sodium but the decrease in total, water, total body water is going to be greater. Always keep in mind, hyponatremia is a water problem, not a sodium problem. Now, there's an interesting concept uh, related to hyponatremia in terms of cerebral salt wasting. And what happens here is that the injured brain, for whatever reason, it suffered some sort of injury, it then releases BNP, which then induces renal sodium wasting and at the same time inhibits renin. So remember here how to differentiate cerebral salt wasting from any of the other renal or extra renal losses and hypovolemic hyponatremia is to remember that the urine sodium is going to be greater than 40. All right, so I'm pretty sure everyone has a good handle on hypovolemic hyponatremia. Let's move on to euvolemic hyponatremia. So usually when we think about euvolemic hyponatremia and causes, we think about things like adrenal insufficiency, hypothyroidism, psychogenic polydipsia, and even drugs like thiazide diuretics, NSAIDs, a low-solute diet like your patients who've got a beer potomania or maybe your elderly patient who's on that tea and toast diet. And of course, you cannot forget SIADH. And if you guys haven't figured this out already, always remember SIADH and hyponatremia, these are buzzwords for lung cancer, specifically small cell, that comes under that perineoplastic syndrome. So with people who've got euvolemic hyponatremia, when we think about the urine osmolarity, that value is going to be greater than 200, and the urine sodium will be greater than 20, except... In people who've got psychogenic polydipsia or who are on a low-solute diet, they're going to have a urine osmolarity greater than, excuse me, less than 100 and a urine sodium less than 10. So to reiterate, anyone who's got euvolemic hyponatremia, urine osmols are going to be greater than 200, urine sodium greater than 20, unless they've got that low-solute diet or psychogenic polydipsia 
and then their urine osmols are going to be less than 100, and their urine sodium is going to be less than 10. Pretty straightforward, right? So let's move on to the last group, hypervolemic hyponatremia. So these are going to be your usual players, people who've got CHF, nephrotic syndrome, and cirrhosis. And so you may be thinking, how do they even get hyponatremic when they're overloaded like this? So what actually happens is that in these states, they have what's called a low effective circulating volume. This basically tricks the body into thinking, well, hey, I need to secrete ADH. And that secretion of ADH will then activate your RAS system, your renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, which then results in an increase in both total body water and sodium. But remember, because hyponatremia is a water problem, not a sodium problem, you're going to have a greater increase in total body water. Now, the other thing to remember is that you can also have acute and chronic renal failure as causes of hypervolemic hyponatremia, not as common as the typical CHF necrotic syndrome and cirrhosis, but you should remember these causes because for acute and chronic renal failure to cause hypervolemic hyponatremia, you got to remember that the urine osmols are going to be greater than 200 and the urine sodium will be less than 10. Now that's going to be in the CHF nephrotic syndrome cirrhotic group, but in the acute and chronic renal failure group, that urine sodium is going to be greater than 20. So to reiterate, in the hypervolemic group, the urine osmols are going to be greater than 200. And in the subcategory of CHF nephrotic syndrome and cirrhosis, the urine sodium is going to be less than 10, while in renal failure, that urine sodium is going to be greater than 20. Now, that honestly was the hardest part. Really, the most difficult part is figuring out what is the cause of your hyponatremia, because once you figure out the cause, then you can delineate how do I treat my patient. So if they're severe and symptomatic, the answer is always hypertonic saline. And remember, yes, central axis is preferred, but getting a central line in or some sort of central axis should not delay treatment. So if you have a midline or even a peripheral, just go ahead and start that hypertonic saline. And then once you get your central axis, then you can switch things over. Now, if someone is hypovolemic, sure, give some isotonic IV fluids. But if they're hypervolemic, think about maybe fluid restricting them and possibly even loop diuretics, depending on the clinical situation. Now, what we haven't talked about yet is euvolemic patients. And those are kind of the most tricky ones because you could give them fluids, but in reality, the best case scenario is to fluid restrict them. And of course, treat the underlying cause. For example, if someone had hypothyroidism or a new diagnosis of lung cancer. There's also another treatment that we can give in this group, and these are called VAPTANs. VAPTANs are actually V2 antagonists, and what they do is they counteract the effect of ADH on the collecting ducts. So you'll get something called an electrolyte-sparing aquaresis, or basically a solute-free water excretion. I have to say this, though. Using VAPTANs in critically ill patients has not really been studied well, so I'd really only consider using them in refractory cases or if you've talked with a nephrology team. Another thing to remember is that you really can't use VAPTANs for more than 30 days, and if your patient has liver disease, they're an absolute contraindication. Now, when we talk about correcting hyponatremia, we have to remember the rate of sodium correction is going to be around 10 points over 
24 hours. I've seen literature that suggests anywhere from 8 to 12, but remember 10 is probably a safe bet. Because remember, this is all about keeping the brain happy. If you correct too fast or don't correct quickly enough, the brain is not going to be able to adapt fast enough to all the fluid shifts. And then you can get disastrous consequences like what I'm sure you guys are all well aware of, osmotic demyelination. So honestly, guys, that's it for me. That's really a great summary, I think, of hyponatremia. And I think the easiest way to think about it is to figure out your underlying cause, use your lab values for confirmation. And once you know what category you're in, then you can go ahead and treat. It's pretty simple. And make sure you don't overcorrect or undercorrect in those first 24 hours, which is crucial. I hope this was helpful for everyone. It was helpful for me. And as always, I'm Dr. J, your friendly neighborhood intensivist, and thank you for listening. Tune in next week for another wild case.